Hello, and welcome to another episode of Who Knows. My name is Chris, and I am your reader for the segment, I guess you'd call it. What's up, everybody? Um, been hopping around a couple books and doing pretty good on them. We are on chapter 14 of Ethics for the New Millennium by the Dalai Lama. Uh, I think we only have a few more chapters, maybe one or two. Let's see here. There are two more chapters after this. Two more. We are almost done with this book, so I'll probably finish these three tonight. And then you will be able to listen to them in order. And as always, for all books that I talk about, that I want to, um, I will um, pass it along to somebody who wants to read it. So if you get a hold of me, let me know uh, if you want this book once we are finished. Excuse me. And um, I'll get it out to you. So we're on chapter 14, Peace and Disarmament. Excuse me. Gotta clear the throat. All right. Chairman Mao once said that political power comes from the barrel of a gun. Of course, it is true that violence can achieve certain short-term objectives, but it cannot obtain long-lasting ends. If we look at history, we find that in time, humanity's love of peace, justice, and freedom always triumphs over cruelty and oppression. This is why I am such a fervent believer in nonviolence. Violence begets violence, and violence means only one thing, suffering. Theoretically, it is possible to conceive of a situation where the only way to prevent large-scale conflict is through armed intervention at an early stage. But the problem with this argument is that it is very difficult, if not impossible, to predict the outcome of violence. Nor can we be sure of its justness at the outset. This This only becomes clear when we have the benefit of hindsight. The only certainty is that where there is violence, there is always inevitably suffering. Some people will say that while the Dalai Lama's devotion to nonviolence is praiseworthy, it is not really practical. Actually, it is far from naive to suppose that the human-created problems which lead to violence can ever be solved through conflict. Observe, for example, that nonviolence was the principal characteristic of the political revolutions which swept across so much of the world during the 1980s. I am convinced that the main reason so many people say the path of nonviolence is impractical is because engaging in it seems daunting. We become discouraged. Nevertheless, whereas formerly it was enough to wish for peace in one's own land or even just in one's neighborhood, today we speak of world peace. This is only appropriate. The fact of human interdependence is so explicit now. The only peace it is meaningful to speak of is world peace. One of the most hopeful aspects of the modern age is the emergence of an international peace movement. If we hear less about it today than we did at the end of the Cold War, this is perhaps because its ideals have been absorbed into mainstream consciousness. But what do I mean when I speak of peace? Are there not grounds for supposing that war is a natural, if regrettable, human activity? Here, we need to make a distinction between peace as a mere absence of war and peace as a state of tranquility founded on the deep sense of security that arises from mutual understanding, 
tolerance of others' point of view, and respect for their rights. Peace in this sense is not what we saw in Europe during the four and a half decades of Cold War, for example. That was only approximation. The very premise on which it rested was fear and suspicion and the strange psychology of mutually assured destruction aptly abbreviated to MAD. M-A-D. Indeed, the peace which characterized the Cold War was so precarious, so fragile, that any serious misunderstanding on the part of either side could have had disastrous consequences. Looking back, especially with the knowledge we now have of the chaotic management of weapon systems in some quarters, I think it quite miraculous that we somehow escaped destruction. Peace is not something which exists independently of us, nor is war. It is true that certain individuals, political leaders, policymakers, army generals, do have particularly grave responsibilities in respect to peace. However, these people do not come from nowhere. They are not born and brought up in outer space. Like us, they were nourished by their mother's milk and affection. They are members of our own human family and have been nurtured within the society which we as individuals have helped create. Peace in the world thus depends on peace in the hearts of individuals. This in turn depends on us all practicing ethics by disciplining our response to negative thoughts and emotions and developing basic spiritual qualities. If real peace is something more profound than a fragile equilibrium based on mutual hostility, if ultimately it depends on the resolution of internal conflict, what are we to say about war? Although paradoxically the aim of the most military campaigns is peace, in reality war is like fire in the human community, one whose fuel is living people. It also strongly resembles fire in the way it spreads. If, for example, we look at the course of the recent conflict in the former Yugoslavia, we see that what began as a relatively confined dispute grew quickly to engulf the whole region. Similarly, if we look individually, if we look at individual battles, we see that where commanders perceive areas of weakness, they respond by sending in reinforcements, which is exactly like throwing live people onto a bonfire. But because of hab habituation, we ignore this. We fail to acknowledge that the very nature of war is cold cruelty and suffering. The unfortunate truth is that we are conditioned to regard warfare as something exciting and even glamorous. The soldiers in smart uniforms so attractive to children with their military bands playing alongside them. We see murder as dreadful, but there is no association of war with criminality. On the contrary, it is seen as an opportunity for people to prove their competence and courage. We speak of the heroes it produces, almost as if the greater the number killed, the more heroic the individual. And we talk about this or that weapon as a marvelous piece of technology, forgetting that when it is used, it will actually maim and murder living people. Your friend, my friend, our mothers, our fathers, our sisters and brothers, you and me. What is even worse is the fact that in modern warfare, the role of those who instigate it are often far removed from the conflict on the ground. At the same time, its impact on non-combatants grows even greater. Those who suffer most in today's armed conflicts are the innocent, not only the families of those fighting, but in far greater numbers, civilians who often do not even play a direct role. Even after the war is over, there continues to be enormous suffering due to landmines and poisoning from the use of chemical weapons, not to mention the economic hardship it brings. This means that more and more women and children, the elderly, are among its prime victims. 
The reality of modern warfare is that the whole enterprise has become almost like a computer game. The ever-increasing sophistication of weaponry has outrun the imaginative capacity of the average layperson. Their destructive capacity is so astonishing that whatever arguments there may be in favor of war, they must be vastly inferior to those against war. We could almost be forgiven for feeling nostalgia for the way in which battles were fought in ancient times. At least then, people fought one another face to face. There was no denying the suffering involved, and in those days it was usual for rulers to lead their troops in battle. If the ruler was killed, that was generally the end of the matter. But as technology improved, the generals began to stay further behind. Today they can be thousands of miles away in their bunkers underground. In view of this, I could almost see developing a smart bullet that could seek out those who decide on wars in the first place. That would seem to be more fair, and on these grounds I could see welcoming a weapon that eliminated the decision-makers while leaving the innocent unharmed. Because of the reality of this destructive capacity, we need to admit that whether they are intended for offensive or for defensive purposes, weapons exist solely to destroy human beings. But lest we suppose that peace is purely dependent on disarmament, we must also acknowledge that weapons cannot act by themselves. Although designed to kill, so long as they remain in storage, they can do no physical harm. Someone has to push a button to launch a missile strike or pull a trigger to fire a bullet. No evil power can do this. Only humans can. Therefore, genuine world peace requires that we also begin to dismantle the military establishments that we have built. We cannot hope to enjoy peace in its fullest sense while it remains possible for a few individuals to exercise military power and impose their will on others. Nor, for that matter, can we hope to enjoy true peace as long as there are authoritarian, authoritarian regimes propped up by armed forces which do not hesitate to carry out injustice, injustice at their bidding. Injustice undermines truth, and without truth there could be no lasting peace. Why not? Because when we have truth on our side, there is a straightforwardness, a confidence that comes with it. Conversely, when truth is lacking, the only way we can achieve our narrow aims is through force. But when decisions come about this way, in defiance of truth, people do not feel quite right, either the victors or the vanquished. This negative feeling serves to undermine the peace which is imposed by force. Clearly, we cannot hope to achieve military disestablishment overnight. Desirable as it may be, unilateral disarmament would be exceedingly difficult to achieve. And although if we wish to see a society in which armed conflict becomes a thing of the past, our ultimate goal must be the ab abolition of all military apparatus. Clearly, it is too much, hope, too much to hope for the elimination of all weapons. After all, even our fists can be used as weapons, and there will always be groups of troublemakers and fanatics who will cause disturbance for others. Therefore, we must allow that, as long as there are human beings, there will have to be ways of dealing with miscreants. We each have a role to play in this. When, as individuals, we disarm ourselves internally through countering our negative thoughts and emotions and cultivating positive qualities, we create the conditions for external disarmament. Indeed, genuine, lasting world peace will only be possible as a result of each of us making an effort internally. Afflictive emotion is the oxygen of conflict. It is thus essential that we remain sensitive to others and recognizing their equal right to happiness do nothing that could contribute to their suffering. To help us in this, it is useful to take time to reflect on how war is actually experienced by its victims. For my own part, I need only think of my visit to Hiroshima some years ago to bring life, bring to life its full horror. 
In the museum there, I saw a watch that had stopped at the exact moment the bomb exploded. I also saw a small pack packet of sewing needles, the contents of which had been fused together in its heat. <clears throat> what is required, therefore, is what we establish clear objectives by means of which we can disarm gradually, and we must develop the political will to, to do so. With respect to practical measures required to the practical measures required to bring about military disestablishment, we need to recognize that it can only occur within the context of a broad commitment to disarmament. It is not enough to think merely in terms of eliminating our weapons of mass destruction. We must create the conditions favorable to our objective. The most obvious way of doing this is by building on existing initiatives. Here I am thinking of the efforts over many years to exercise control over the prol proliferation of certain classes of weapon and in some cases to eliminate them. During the 1970s and 1980s, we saw the SALT, S-A-L-T, Strategic Arms Limitation Treaties talks between the Eastern and Western blocs. We have had in place for many years a nuclear non-proliferation treaty to which many countries are already committed. And despite the spread of nuclear weapons, the idea of a universal ban is still alive. Excuse me. <clears throat> Encouraging progress has also been made toward the burn banning of landmines. At the time of this writing, the majority of the world's governments have signed protocols renouncing their use. So while it remains true that none of these initiatives has so far fully succeeded in their aims, their very existence indicates recognition of the undesirability of these methods of destruction. They testify to humans' basic wish to live in peace, and they provide a useful start which is capable of development. Another way in which we can move further toward our objective of global military disestablishment is by gradually, gradually dismantling our arms industry. To many, this suggestion will seem a preposterous and unfeasible idea. They will object that unless everybody agrees to do so simultaneously, this would be madness, and that, they will say, can never happen. Besides, they will add, there is the economic argument to consider. Yet if we look at the matter from the point of view of those who suffer the consequences of armed violence, it becomes very hard to deny our responsibility to overcome these objections by some means or another. Indeed, whenever I think of the arms industry and the suffering it enables, I am again reminded of my visit to the Nazi death camp at Auschwitz. As I stood, looking at the ovens in which thousands of human beings just like myself were burned, many of them still alive, humans cannot, who cannot bear the heat of a single match, what struck me hardest was the realization that these devices had been built with the care and attention of talented workmen. I could almost see the engineers, all intelligent people, at their drawing boards, carefully planning the shape of the combustion chambers and calculating the size of chimneys, their height and breadth. I thought of the craftsmen who brought the design to fruition. No doubt they took pride in their work, as good craftsmen do. Then it occurred to me that this is precisely what modern-day weapons designers and manufacturers are about. They, too, are devising the means to destroy thousands, if not millions, of their fellow human beings. Isn't this a disturbing thought? With this in mind, all those individuals who undertake such work would do well to consider whether they can really justify their involvement. No doubt they would suffer if they gave it up unilaterally. No doubt, too, the, econ the economies of the arms manufacturing nations would suffer if these facilities were closed down. 
But would this not be a price worth paying? Besides, it seems that there are many examples in the world of companies which have successfully converted from weapons to some other form of manufacture. Also, we have the example of the world's one demilitarized state, which we can consider in relation to its neighbors. If the example of Costa Rica, which disarmed as long as 1949, long ago as 1949, is anything to go by, the benefits in terms of standard living, of health, and often education are tremendous. As to the argument that it would perhaps be more realistic simply to restrict arms exports to those countries which are reliable and safe, I suggest that this reflects a very short-sighted outlook. It has been demonstrated time and time again that this doesn't work, does not work. We are all familiar with the recent history of the Persian Gulf. During the 1970s, the Western Allies armed the Shah of Iran as a counterforce to the perceived threat from Russia. Then, when the political climate changed, Iran itself was considered a threat to Western interests. So the Allies began to arm Iraq against Iran. But then, when times changed yet again, these weapons were used against the West's other allies in the Gulf, Kuwait. As a result, the manufacturing countries found themselves going to war with their own client. In other words, there is no such thing as a safe client for arms. I cannot deny that my aspiration toward global disarmament and military disestablishment is idealistic. At the same time, there are clear grounds for optimism. One of these is the ironic fact that so far as nuclear and other weapons of mass destruction are concerned, it is extremely hard to conceive of a situation where they could be useful. Nobody wants to risk all-out nuclear war. These weapons are also an obvious waste of money. They are expensive to produce, it is impossible to imagine using them, and there is nothing to do but stockpile them, which also costs a great deal of money. In effect, therefore, they are utterly useless and nothing but a drain on resources. Another reason for optimism is again the steady intertwining of national economies. This is creating a climate in which notions of purely national interest and advantage are becoming less and less meaningful. As a result, the idea of war as a means to resolve conflict is starting to look decidedly old-fashioned. Where there are human beings, there will always be conflict. This is true. Disagreements are bound to surface from time to time, but given today's reality of increasingly widespread nuclear weapons proliferation, we have to find some way other than violence to resolve them. This means dialogue in the spirit of reconciliation and compromise. This is not just wishful thinking on my part. The global trend toward international political grouping, of which the European Union is perhaps the most obvious example, means that it is possible to envisage a time when maintaining purely national standing armies could one day seem both uneconomic and unnecessary. Instead of thinking only in terms of protecting individual borders, it will become logical to think in terms of regional security. In fact, this is already beginning to happen. There are, albeit as yet tentative, plans to integrate European defenses more closely. A Franco-German army brigade has been exist in existence for more than 10 years now. It thus seems possible, at least so far as the European community is concerned, that what began purely as a trading alliance could eventually assume responsibility for regional security. And if this is possible, within Europe, there is a reason to hope that other international trading groups, of which there are many, could evolve to do the same. Why not? The emergence of such regional security groupings would, I feel, contribute enormously to the transition from our current preoccupation with nation-states to the gradual acceptance of less narrowly defined communities. 
They could also pave the way for a world in which there would be no standing armies at all. Such a scenario would, of course, have to evolve in stages. National, arms forces, national armed forces would give way to regional security groupings. These could then gradually be disbanded, leaving only a globally administered police force. The main purpose of this force would be to safeguard justice, communal security, and human rights worldwide. Its specific duties would be various, however. Protecting against the appropriation of power by violent means would be one of them. As to its operation, granted there are legal issues to be tackled first. But I imagine that it would be called in either by communities which came under threat from neighbors or from some of its own members, such as a violently extreme political faction, or it could be deployed by the international community itself when violence seemed the likely outcome of conflict, for example, of religious or ideological disputes. Even though it is true that we remain a long way from this ideal situation, again, it is not so fanciful as it may seem at first. Maybe this generation will not live to see it, but we are already accustomed to seeing United Nations troops deployed as peacekeepers. We are also beginning to see the emergence of a consensus that under certain circumstances it may be justifiable to use them in a more interventionist way. As a means for furthering these develops, developments, we might consider the establishment of what I call zones of peace. Here I imagine either a part or parts of one or more country being demilitarized to create oasis of stability, preferably in areas of strategic significance. These would serve as beacons of hope for the rest of the world. Admittedly, this idea is quite ambitious, but it is not without precedent. We already have one such internationally recognized demilitarized zone in Antarctica. Nor am I the only individual ever to suggest there could be more. Former Russian President Mikhail Gorbachev proposed that proposed such just such status for the Sino-Russian borderlands. I myself have advanced the idea for Tibet. Of course, it is not hard to think of areas in the world other than Tibet where neighboring communities would benefit enormously from the establishment of a demilitarized, demilitarized zone. Just as India and China, both of them are still relatively poor countries, would save a considerable proportion of their respective, respective annual income if Tibet were to become an internationally recognized zone of peace. So there are many others on each continent from which a tremendous, wasteful burden would be lifted if there were no need to maintain large numbers of troops on their borders. I have often thought, for example, that Germany is the most appropriate location for a zone of peace. Lying as it does in the heart of Europe and taking into account the experience of the 20, 20th century's two world wars. In all of this, I believe the United Nations has a critical role to play. Not that it is the only body devoted to global issues, there is also much to admire about the ideas behind the International Court at The Hague, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and others such as those dedicated to upholding the Geneva Conventions. But at present, and for the conceivable future, the United Nations is the only global in institution capable of both influencing and formulating policy on behalf of the international community. Of course, many people criticize it on the grounds that it is ineffective. And it is true that time and time again we have seen its resolutions ignored, abandoned, and forgotten. Nevertheless, in spite of these shortcomings, I for one continue to have the highest regard, not only for the principles on which it was founded, but also for the great deal it has achieved since its inception in 1945. We need only ask ourselves whether or not it has helped save lives through diffusing potentially disastrous situations, 
to see that it is more than the toothless bureaucracy some people say it is. We should also consider the great work of its subsidiary organizations such as UNICEF, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, UNESCO, and the World Health Organization. This remains true even if some of their programs and policies and those of other world organizations have been flawed and misguided. I see the United Nations, if it could be developed into its full potential, as being the proper vehicle for carrying out the wishes of humanity as a whole. As yet, it is not able to do this very effectively, but then we are only just beginning to see the emergence of a global consciousness, which has been made possible by the communications revolution. And in spite of tremendous difficulties, we have seen it in action in numerous parts of the world, even though at the moment there may only be one or two nations spearheading these initiatives. The fact that they are seeking the legitimacy conferred by the United Nations mandate suggests a felt needed for justification through collective approbation. This, in turn, I believe to be indicative of a growing sense of a single mutually dependent human community. One of the particular weaknesses of the United Nations as it is present, presently constituted is that although it provides a forum for individual governments, individual citizens cannot be heard there. It has no mechanism whereby those wishing to speak out against their own governments can be heard. To make matters worse is the fact that the veto system currently in place opens its workings to manipulation by the more powerful nations. These are profound shortcomings. As to the problem of individuals not having a voice, here we might have to consider something more radical. Just as democracy is ensured by the three pillars of an independent judiciary, executive, and legislature, so we need to have a genuinely independent body at the international level. But perhaps the United Nations, United Nations is not entirely suited to this role. I have noticed that at international gatherings such as the Earth Summit in Brazil, that individuals representing their country inevitably put their nation's interest first, despite the fact that the question at issue transcends national boundaries. Conversely, when people come as individuals to international gatherings, here I am thinking of groups, as, of such groups as the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War Group, or the Initiative on the Arms Trade by the Nobel Peace Laureates, of which I am a member there is much greater concern for humanity itself. Their spirit is much more genuinely international and open. This leads me to think that it could be worthwhile to establish a body whose principal task is to monitor human affairs from the perspective of ethics, an organization that might be called the World Council of the People, although no doubt a better name could be found. This would consist in a group of individuals drawn, as I imagine it, from a wide variety of backgrounds. There would be artists, bankers, environmentalists, lawyers, poets, academics, religious thinkers, and writers, as well as ordinary men and women with a common reputation for integrity and dedication to fundamental ethical and human values. Because this body would not actually be invested with political power, its pronouncements would not be legally binding, but by virtue of its independence having no link with any one nation or group of nations, and no ideology, these deliberations would represent the conscious, conscious, conscience of the world. They would thus carry moral authority. Of course, there will be many who criticize this proposal, along with what I have said about military disestablishment, disarmament, and reform of the United Nations on the grounds that it is unrealistic, or perhaps just too simplistic.
or they will say that it is not workable in the real world. But while people are often content to just criticize and blame others for what goes wrong, surely we should at least attempt to put forward constructive ideas. One thing is for certain. Given human beings' love of truth, justice, peace, and freedom, creating a better, more compassionate world is a genuine possibility. The potential is there. If, with the help of education and the proper use of the media, we can combine some of the initiatives suggested here with the implementation of ethical principles, we will have within our reach a climate in which disarmament and military disestablishment become totally uncontroversial. On the basis of this, we will have created the conditions for lasting world peace. A lot of stuff in that chapter. Not bad. Dalai Lama's got some, got some ideas. We got two more chapters of this book, so, um, yeah, stay tuned. Thanks for coming, guys. I really appreciate appreciate all all my listeners, whoever you are. Um, but I'm here, so thanks for coming. Bye.